Um, it's a great pleasure today to introduce uh, Mark Flanagan. Mark's a, an old friend of mine. He works in the electronic engineering department in, uh, in UCD and toured the world previously, including uh, Switzerland and Italy and sunny Scotland. Um, but uh, in the last few years, he's been working on LDPC codes, which he's going to tell us a little bit about today. So off you go, Mark. Okay, uh, thanks, Ken. So um, I'd like to um, say hello to everybody. Um, my name is Mark Flanagan. I'm from UCD. And um, what I'm going to talk about today is, uh, well, talks is entitled on the design of doubly generalized low-density parity check codes, uh, or LDPC codes, as they're, they're known these days. Um, so this, uh, this work is, I'm going to give a kind of comprehensive uh, account of what we've done in this area. Um, it's a joint work with uh, my colleagues Enrico Paolini and Marco Chiani, who are at the uh, University of Bologna, and also with uh, Marc Fassarier, who's uh, with the Etus Encia in France. So uh, I'd like to start by giving some kind of uh, introduction. Uh, I can't spend too long on LDPC codes because we have to move on, and it's a, it's a highly uh, trodden area at the stage, but... Um, there's a lot of work done, which I can't really go into, but basically these low-density party check codes go back to the thesis of one of the great information theorists, uh, Bob Gallagher, who actually introduced them in his thesis in 1962. And the idea is really, I mean, the idea of party check coding is, well, maybe as well draw here. So we want to transmit a block of data, uh, ones and zeros. So each of these cells, oh. yeah, each of these cells holds a one or a zero, we'll say. So um, this, if we just put ones and zeros into these cells, it's not very resilient to errors. So to make it more error resilient, we can impose constraints on the, on the information block. So for example, we could introduce what's called a parity check constraint. This is a parity check constraint saying that this bit plus this bit plus, say, this bit have to sum to zero. So this means, of course, we have to have a one in here and so forth. So we can introduce various parity check constraints on, the, on the various parts of the block. This obviously reduces the essential information content of the block, but it also makes it more error resilient. And this, this idea goes back to Shannon's work in 1950. So, uh, <clears throat> okay, so the idea of, um, this is the idea of parity check coding. Uh, to obtain good codes, use a very long block and lots of parity checks. Um, we obtain, by this kind of picture, we obtain something called a Tanner graph which is actually a graphical structure telling you about the constraints. And actually, it's really what I've got here. What we do is we have, essentially, we've got these can be regarded as nodes, our variable nodes. So there are nodes containing the bits in the, in the uh, block. And then we also have these what are called check nodes. So we'll draw another one here, say. So this might check the parity of this guy, this guy, and say this guy. Of course, that means that's a one. These are check nodes, OK? So, and of course, the connectivity here is in the form of a graph. So we have what's called a Tanner graph. Sometimes we have these little pendant nodes or pendant uh, edges as well. And the idea of low density code means you've got a sparse Tanner graph. That's all it means. Okay, so uh, we then associate bits, as you can see. This is obvious from what I've talked about with the variable nodes. And the check nodes represent the parity checks, as we've seen. Um, so this is a, another picture of this thing. So this is a little more complete. The idea is that we show here the variable nodes on the bottom here, and we associate some bits, 1, 1, 0, for example, with the, these nodes. Then we've got some check nodes. These are um, checking the parity. And of course, we have some, the sockets on this side are connected to the sockets on this side by some permutation, uh, which we call pi. So for example, let's suppose these, this, this guy here is checking the parity of three bits. Suppose it happens to be connected to these three. We have 1 plus 1 plus 1 is 0. The parties checked are fine. OK. so. This is the basic idea of LDPC codes. Now, this talk is about doubly generalized codes. So what does this mean? To give you a quick idea, we can observe that these check nodes here are actually codes. They're actually trivial codes called single-party check codes. So these guys here can be regarded as trivial block codes, uh, which are just performing a single-party check. You can imagine that maybe they could do more complex uh, things. Maybe they could be more complex codes themselves. Uh, not uh, quite so obvious is the fact that these Variable nodes can be regarded as trivial codes as well, um, the repetition codes. So you can imagine this node here is repeating the one towards these edges, and then these edges are being checked. The bits associated with the edges are being checked as opposed to the bits associated with the nodes. So not so obvious is that these are repetition codes. Again, trivial codes, which maybe could be replaced, hint, hint, with uh, more complex uh, structures. 
So the first generalized idea, the reason for the name doubly generalized is it, uh, historical. It, it, the generalization occurred in two steps. The first is by Tanner in 81, who introduced generalized codes. Um, as hinted, bef hinted at before, the, any degree S check node could be replaced by any SH linear block code. So you could replace it with another type of block code, um, sometimes called a generalized check node. And the nice thing about this is it, it represents a promising solution for low-rate channel coding. So uh, low-rate means that you don't get as much information in the block. The reason is that strengthening the, the check nodes actually you know, introduces more constraints. This gives you less information in your block. So it's a good solution for, for low-rate channel coding scheme. Um, but we, we can't help losing rate, in a sense. The second one that came along is the, the not-so-obvious... Uh, what have I done? Uh, okay, the not-so-obvious generalization came along later on, and uh, really in a number of steps, um, to generalize the variable nodes. So the idea is the variable nodes could be replaced by linear block code types, uh, uh, any type of block code, like Hamming code or BCH code or something like that. Uh, so again, any degree Q variable node could be any Q, K linear block code, dim uh, dimension K block code. And the idea here is that the, if you remember from the previous, uh, what happened was that uh, a bit is associated with the, with the uh, variable node, comes up and gets encoded to, uh, well, it, it, it gets repeated towards the tanograph. But in this uh, situation, we have k local information bits. These actually form part of the ultimate code word and then get encoded to produce these q bits, which then get checked by the generalized check nodes. Okay, this further generalizes this uh, GLDPC, but the, the nice thing about this generalization is it allows us to compensate for that rate loss we got before with the generalize. So it allows you to trade the rates. You can uh, strengthen the variable nodes to compensate for the loss in rate that, that happened when, gen when uh, generalizing the check node uh, constructions. Okay, so to give an, uh, just a quick example uh, to try and clarify this idea, this is kind of like the uh, picture I had before, except that this kind of time we have um, generalize these nodes. We have some 7.4 Hamming codes here. This is, we left this as original SPC code. These are again 7.4 Hamming codes and here we've got a repetition code. So if you think about it, we can think about it as follows, okay? We have nine bits. These bits here are the, are the bits in the actual code word. Then what happens is, so if we imagine any vector being associated here, any nine-bit vector, we can imagine encoding uh, via this node here to produce code words across here. These then are permuted in some way to these sockets here, and then these, uh, we must make sure that these seven guys here have to lie in the Hamming code, and same for this, and the same for this. And if all of these codes actually see, these nodes here see code words of their respective codes, then this original guy here down the bottom is a length nine code word. Okay, so I guess, let me see. Uh, first, first I'll just give an idea, well, okay, first I'll just, um, I won't really go through this, but this is just, I've mentioned some of these papers before. This is the literature which builds up generalized and doubly generalized codes. Okay, so what do we actually do? Well, um, what we do is we essentially are interested in, okay, our first contribution is in terms of the weight distribution. Okay, so you, like in, in an ordinary, with an ordinary code, of, which is fixed, you consider the weight distribution. What we do is we consider what's called spectral shape or asymptotic growth rate of the weight distribution, and we consider linear weight code words. So I'll explain a little more what this means, but essentially it's the analog of, of a weight distribution in the classical sense. What we have here is, if you remember, there's a permutation connecting the variable nodes to the check nodes, and we actually look at all random permutations, uh, and we kind of look at an ensemble of codes, and then we look at you know, what happens on the average in terms of the weight of the of any code from the ensemble. So our result is in two parts. First of all, we have this analytic result, which looks at this uh, growth rate or spectral shape. Uh, we generalize the known results in this direction for low density party check codes and also the generalized version. Uh, we make a connection with the stability condition over the binary erasure channel, which is, uh, so essentially makes a connection and completes a nice picture, which again, I'll show later. Um, and also we have, first of all, we have a compact expression which determines whether the ensemble is asymptotically good. I'll explain what this means in a while. Uh, we also consider, we also derive a polynomial system solution which, for the growth rate. So the two kind of contributions here of asymptotic goodness or, or not, and then this polynomial system give us essentially a, a, a general solution, a complete solution for the growth rate of, of this most general class of, of LDPC codes. Okay, so then move on to look at design. Um, 
and we consider a specific case. I mean, there's a lot of design parameters here, so we just consider one case of a regular tanograph. We consider single-party check variable nodes instead of repetition codes, uh, and then we consider transmission over BEC. Uh, we do an exit chart analysis, which is a standard analysis for working at the iterative decoding threshold uh, to see how good these ensembles are with the doubly generalized instead of ordinary ensemble. And then we investigate the possibility of improving the compromise between waterfall performance and error floor, which are two important um, parameters of, uh, of how the code, uh, the code, uh, code does. Okay, so, um, so I'm going to spend a little time trying to explain what this uh, irregular doubly generalized code ensemble is. So the idea here is that if you consider any fixed code, you have a lot of code words, they have different weights. So the weight of the code word is how many ones are in the code word. So here, for example, if this was a complete code word, we'd have four ones, so the weight of that code word is four. So you can imagine for a long code with many constraints, you can figure out all the different weights, and you get what's called a weight distribution. But interestingly, um, this goes back to the work of Shannon, the original work in coding theory. Um, it's been shown that random coding is a very good solution to channel coding. So picking random codes or picking codes at random for certain, from certain families of codes uh, tends to do well. So what we consider is the, the situation where we have a large number of variable nodes, which we call little n. So that's these guys here. And then what we have is we have certain types of codes. So here's one type of variable node. It's, it's same type here, same type here. Then the red shows another type of variable node. And then up here, we've got different types of check node. We might have, this might be a Hamming code, for example, um, this green node, then this orange node might represent a different type of node, such as a single party check uh, code. So what we do is we build what's called a, uh, an ensemble or a code family. So what we do is we pick, we're going to say we're going to have a fixed number n, little n, of these nodes. And then we're going to say that a certain fraction of the edges of the graph are going to be connected to nodes of a certain type. So the idea is that n is a fixed number, but then you're going to say um, we're going to have a certain fraction of the nodes are going to be of type green, another fraction might be of type orange, and so on. And then, of course, we can let n vary, n might get larger, but we'll still have those fractions, so they'll, they'll be constant. So this gives us, and of course the idea is then we're going to consider what happens on the average as this uh, permutation here runs over all, uh, all of the e factorial permutations, where e is the number of edges in the graph. And then you can kind of figure out what happens on the average with this type of code family. So some definitions for the ensemble. Well, again, this is a, if this is a degree S check node, this is some SH check node is the same as this guy here. And then this guy here is some QK variable node. And maybe it's repeated a certain number of times. So some definitions. We have what's called, uh, we generalize the idea of degree distribution, which is the classical method used for analyzing uh, LDPC codes. It goes right back to the main work done by Richardson et al. Um, so the idea is that we generalize this to the idea that we've got lambda t tells us what fraction of, uh, of the, of the um, edges in the tanograph are connected to variable nodes of some type t. And the idea is that we fixed how many, what our types are. We might have a couple, uh, BCH type, we might have a single party check type and so on. And then we also have on the, on the check node side, we have this row t telling us how much, what fraction of the tanograph edges are connected to uh, check nodes of type t. So these, this, this fixes essentially kind of distribution of types uh, over the check node side and on the variable node side. And then, of course, we just use a generating function to make this polynomial lambda of x and rho of x. It's kind of a neat way of, of uh, writing this stuff. And then what happens is, okay, we've got, given that we have certain fractions going on here, we can say, well, how many in total, how many bits do we have in the, in the actual code? And then how many parity checks are there in total? You can count them all up for, and then use the averaging and so on. So we have what's called a design rate for the code telling us how many information bits are actually present per code word, um, or per code bit, if you like, and this gives the design rate. And also we can count, uh, given these definitions, we can count how many encoded bits are there, so how many bits are run along the bottom here and are actually going to be sent down the channel. This is the number of bits here. And then how many checks will, you know, take into account all the fraction of different nodes and what type they are, we can figure out how many checks there are in the in the code, where n, little n here is how many variable nodes there are in total, and little m represents how many check nodes there are in total. Okay, so uh, it's important to realize that rather than looking at the weight distribution of a particular fixed block code, we're looking at the average behavior, um, which we'll see in more detail later on. We look at this, uh, you look at all permutations 
between the node set and the other node set, and then you look at a particular fixed fraction, fractions of certain check nodes and variable nodes of certain type. Okay, so I'm going to build up some definitions, and there's going to be quite a few equations here, but we're going to extract certain parameters which are going to be important in terms of the behavior of these codes on the average. So the first thing is that each check node is a certain type of block code. So what happens is it has a weight enumerating polynomial, or a simple generating function telling you um, what the weight, uh, the weight behavior, weight spectrum of, the, of the, that type of code is. So this is just quite a fixed thing because this, this type of check node might be, say, a 7-4 Hamming code or something like that. So we have here AUT, gradient to naught, is the number of weight U code words for, for, for check nodes of type T. So this just tells us what the weight distribution of a particular type of uh, code is. Now, on the variable node side, we have a kind of encoding operation where a certain set of bits come in, it gets encoded by, by the variable node and produces more bits. So we have a kind of an input-output weight enumerating function. Uh, so we have a kind of a bivariate polynomial describing that kind of weight distribution because we need to know what's going in, what kind of weight is coming in to produce what weight on the other side. So here we have the coefficient BUVT tells us how many weight V code words are produced by inputs of weight U for these type T variable nodes. And we have that for every T. So we got these polynomials. So this sums up a certain type of thing on the check node type and here on the variable node type. Then, so we're going to extract certain parameters which are going to play a fundamental role, as we'll see in a while. So all of these different check node types, we might have a couple of different types in our uh, distribution. We say they all have a minimum distance, so let's look at which guys out of that have the smallest minimum distance. So the smallest minimum distance over all the different types could be, say, we call it little or. And certain of those check node types will have that minimum distance. That set of check nodes is, uh, types is called XC. So it's, it's which types have that minimum, smallest minimum distance. Um, there could be only one type with, that achieves minimum. Uh, and then what we do is we basically grab those check node types and we compute something which depends on them, which we call C. It's a real positive real number, but as you'll see, this, this number will be, be important. So capital C is a positive real number, which, if you like, it kind of sums up what's happening in terms of these check nodes. So it, it extracts a certain uh, piece of information from, from the distribution and the types. Okay, so on the variable node side, we have, again, a, a couple of different types of variable node. Each of these has a minimum distance. And what we can do is we can say, okay, well, which of those types has the smallest minimum distance? And what is that smallest minimum distance? So the smallest minimum distance is called P. And the types which achieve it, we put them into a set, and we call the set XV. So that's which, set, which variable nodes achieve the smallest minimum distance. And the minimum distance itself is called P. Um, when P is 2, we do a few, more, uh, few other things. When P is 2, what we can do is we can say, okay, well, now we know that um, the minimum distance on the variable node side is 2, so certain inputs are producing weight 2. So what are those inputs? And, and we call those inputs, we put them into a set called LT. And then we use these definitions to basically throw together this polynomial P of X. Again, this P of X, the details of the formula are not important. What, what is important is that you simply extract which of those variable nodes have minimum distance 2, and, uh, and then create this polynomial P of X. So the parameter C is a positive real number summarizing what's happening on the check node side, and this P of X is a polynomial telling you what's happening, if you like, extracting the relevant information from the variable node side. And it's, again, it's a little more complicated than just a positive real number. This reflects the more complex nature of the variable node side with the encoding. Mark? Uh, yeah. So when you see your um, variable node side, you have the bivariate polynomial. Yes. Minimum distance would be the lowest degree in the y variable, or? Let me see. Uh, yes, I think so. Let me, let me just check. Uh, sorry, I just went back through it. Sorry, yes. Hold on. So, yes, we're talking about the largest y degree, yeah. And then the, U, the, 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 X degree, the x's which tag onto that tell you what's, what's producing, and then you can look at the distribution in there. Okay. Um, so, something interesting which keep, keeps cropping up is that the variable node representation is, starts to come in. So the variable node, we consider, okay, what kind of code are we using as a variable node? Is it single party check, et cetera? But this is not all that's important. Actually, the generator matrix we're using matters because there's an encoding operation happening there. So this actually will affect P of X. Um, another thing is that uh, you can show easily that P of X is actually invertible uh, on the non-negative real numbers. So it's just got positive coefficients, so you can invert the function if you want to. And of course, it's, it's going to be useful to invert it, as we'll see in a minute. 
Um, and when R and P is 2, but this, these two kind of uh, su summary quantities, the parameter C and the polynomial P of X, depend only on the minimum distance 2 guys. So they only depend on the minimum distance anyway. But if the, if the minimum distance on the check node and variable outside are both 2, then these parameters only depend on those nodes. In other words, don't matter. You can throw them in their handling Okay, so uh, I'll define what's meant by the growth rate of the weight distribution. So we want to know about the weight distribution of these codes. So what, what, how do we build the definition? Well, it's defined as this thing here. So that we've got an ensemble sequence. The idea is that we've got an ensemble or a family because of this permutation effect. It means we've got uh, each possible permutation gives us a family. But of course, little n, the number of variable nodes, this can vary as well. So we've got actually a sequence of these families. Um, and what we do is we consider the expectation. We look at Okay, um, to, to show you what this definition means, um, we have an expectation over the ensemble, so we look at, for fixed n, we look at what, you know, let's look at all the permutations and consider expectation of the number of cohorts of linear weights. So we're interested in what, we're looking at cohorts of, of some weight which is alpha n, so this is a linear weight cohorts, linear in, in number of variable nodes, uh, and actually linear in the block length of the code as well, um, of a randomly chosen LBPC code. And what happens is, basically, the motivation for the definition is that if you look at uh, how many cohorts do we have of length alpha n, so we actually average this. We need to average over all the permutations because there's a huge number of possibilities. So we take the expectation of this. And what happens is, basically, this goes as It's exponential in n, simple as that. So it's e to the n times something, where this guy here is independent of n. This g of alpha guy is independent of n. So this obviously motivates the definition up there. Take one over n, and, uh, and take the log and then take the limit. So we're into the asymptotic behavior. So as n gets large, you get the best codes, and you can look at the classical achievement, and so on. OK, so this motivates the definition. So we have an exponential uh, a number of linear weight coordinates cover its exponential at n. And another thing to show as well is we want to know is this ensemble or family any good? You know, so we're going to pick a certain number, we're going to pick, okay, we pick certain types of code, and we pick a certain fraction of them and connect them up a certain way. And overall random permutations, you know, does it does it do well? What, what do we want from this uh, this one? So if we look at G of alpha, we can get two different, very different types of behavior. As you can see, we have e to the n g of alpha, so we can get something like this. Or, we could, the other possible behavior is, we can get something like this. So, it's possible that if g of alpha is negative at the beginning, that this guy will drop, and then cross the axis later. It's also possible that it actually just cross the axis, uh, you know, jump straight up, and have a positive uh, value straight up. Now, it has to rise at some point because those codes are hiding somewhere. There's lots and lots of them in there. So, it's important to, to discriminate between these two cases. We can call this um, bad, and this is good, in a certain sense. Okay, so we can say this asymptotic is the term asymptotically good and asymptotically bad, and again, in the linear weight cohort sense. So, this is the kind of thing we're interested in illuminating. Um, now, there's a technical point that when we look at this limit, sometimes it isn't defined, so we skip over the ends that don't make sense, like log zeros or that, we're not, not interested in those, so we just skip over those. But essentially, the limit makes sense if we skip over the right end. So, our first result is the following. If we have a minimum distance 2 on the variable element check node sides, then what happens is um, we can have this nice formula for the weight distribution. So, we have the growth rate of the weight distribution, g of alpha. Remember, g of alpha is always independent of n, which is important to and we see that it's linear in alpha plus some stuff that doesn't really matter when alpha gets small, right? So the idea is that alpha gets small enough, then we don't really care about this. We have essentially linear growth of g of alpha. And of course, that's, that's here at the origin. Right? So we're interested in, we're interested in is this coefficient of alpha positive or negative, right? And this, of course, discriminates between asymptotically good and bad and distance behavior. So yeah, this is our first result. And again, the, the, first of all, the results are, are quite long, so I'm not going to go through any, within any sense. Um, but uh, this, of course, generalizes a, a, a result for LDPC codes. 
And you can see that it depends on the p inverse of 1 over c. So we need the inversibility, we need to extract p and c, and these are actually the only parameters which affect growth rate. So for example, we threw in some timing codes on either side of the distribution of make no whatsoever in terms of these parameters. So this guy here being um, uh, positive or negative uh, will tell us, or sorry, uh, being less than or greater than 1 actually, will, will tell us whether we have uh, good or bad ensemble. Okay, so this actually makes a nice connection, or completes a nice connection with what's called stability condition over the binary erasure channel. So this um, is a, an upper bound on what's called the iterative decoding threshold of a code ensemble. And without going into too much detail, it's essentially a bound which is already derived for all of these code classes, including the one we're interested in. And if you look at the picture, what happens is that the stability condition, this upper bound, is the inverse of exactly the number that appears inside the logarithm in, in the growth rate function. Um, yes, yes, sorry? So in the previous theorem you gave, you said for sufficiently small alpha, have you any yes. idea of the region in which? No. Um, no, that's not, I mean, the idea is that, I mean, in the proof you have to have alpha sufficiently small and then you can say certain things. I mean, it's not, it's not we don't have a result really on how small alpha has to be, but, I mean, it, in practice, when it comes to actually plotting these things, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Um, so it's the design Yes, well, I mean, okay, our, our work following this, which I'll talk about in a minute, actually talks about w working out the exact... Geological curve. Okay. So you can actually figure out the whole curve. Okay. Um, so this, this is just really to, uh, to have a parameter. The idea here is this parameter is telling you whether the code is any good or not. How good it is, is comes along later. So you can use this in design. You can, you can basically impose a constraint that this guy has to be something and then design on that basis. Prob prob probabilistically, right, the, the, the 1 over n log expectation is a scale cumulative generating function, so that this, this derivative at the origin corresponds to the mean of a distribution, and that's, okay. why, that's why it's, it's robust. So small alpha is just to do with... It's, poly it's pulling out a property of a mean of a distribution, and you can only do so as the alpha tends towards zero, but unless there, unless there was a heavy tail and there's a heavy enough tail, you won't have... Yeah, I mean, in the proof, we actually just need to say alpha is less than some property and then we can in infer something. But, you know, it's not obvious what numerically that could be or, you know. No, you're, you're basically looking at the derivative at the origin. Right? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Yeah, which is why it's really small alpha. You're kind of really looking for a Taylor expansion near the origin. Right? Yeah, yeah. In fact, well, the proof doesn't actually, I mean, just figuring out G of, G of alpha and, and differentiating would seem like a nice way to go, but because of what happens in the, in the proof, it's not, it's not obvious how to go that way, you know? So, I mean, the, the way we attack it is, well, using various uh, things, but, you know, we don't actually explicitly go that way, but essentially that's what we're targeting. Well, I, I suspect that you can use some convex analysis to do that. Anyway. Right, yeah, yeah. I'll show you the proof, actually. Yeah, yeah I'll tell you, yeah. Okay, so... The, okay, so just to complete this picture, we have basically completely, we have already this, this is known, this uh, stability condition, and we see that this, the inverse parameter is exactly what slots into the model here, so it completes this picture quite nicely for the most general case of this class. Um, so, it's, so just saying it there, it's direct generalization of this parameter. Um, okay, so the, another interesting thing is uh, we've recently completed the general analysis, so again for small alpha, but this time OR and P. Um, well, I'll explain the results. This is for any OR and any P, any minimum distances on the check-in uh, variable side. So we have the growth rate. You get a more complicated function. I'll just explain what the parameters are vaguely first. Um, the side parameter here is OR over OR minus 1. OR is the minimum distance on the check-in side. This T guy here, the important thing here is this T is always non-negative, and it's only zero when the minimum distances are both 2 on the check-in variable. So what happens really is our previous results considered this guy. Or equals p equals two. Now, when that isn't satisfied, when you have some minimum distance which is bigger than two, suddenly this t goes positive, which actually causes, in effect, this this parameter, or sorry, this term to kick in. So you get this alpha log alpha, and what that actually does is it pulls g of alpha down from zero, and, and it makes your, your class your code is less than top of you good. So you don't have to worry in that case. In the or equals p equals two, you have to check this parameter that I'm showing And uh, again, you get to some other interesting things happening here, but it's not so important from a practical perspective. Okay, and P1, P2 are polynomials. P1 is essentially the P we had before, and P2 is another guy. Okay, so 
The second case, um, which uh, Bob alluded to, is the case of arbitrary alpha. So suppose we, we now know have, we, we have a general idea of what's happening at the origin, and we can kind of say whether something's asymptotically good or not. We have an idea of the derivative, so we have an idea of you know, which way it's going at the origin, but it'd be nice to be able to work out the entire curve. So we have figured out a way of doing this. Um, it's not so nice and compact as before, but this is, this is generally the way, the way this uh, analysis has gone in the LDPC case. Um, what we do is we can actually work out g of alpha in a simple way. What we have to do is basically for a given alpha, you end up with this 4 by 4 system. So there's four unknowns, x not one, z not beta. There's four reasonably complicated equations taking into account the distributions, how what fractions you have going on, what are the numerators, and so on. And so you have to solve this four by four. You, you need to find the unique positive real values which uh, solve the system. And when that's known, you then have to stick those four values into this equation here. Now, at first glance, this may seem a bit not really the nicest solution. Okay? It's not a really lovely closed form solution like last time, but really I want to stress that this, this solution is a hell of a lot nicer than, than when you try to solve this problem first, you find that what happens is this guy here, the, the growth rate formula, can be, you need to figure out the asymptotic of the of the coefficient in the, in, the, in the power expansion of a polynomial, then you need to look at the asymptotic of that. Um, and you can turn this into an optimization problem, it's still a multi highly multidimensional optimization problem. It's very difficult to plot this thing. So it's a very nice trick so you can get it down to this. So this is now something you can implement on a computer, which it really, there's no hope of doing that before we, we, uh, we do this analysis. Can, can I ask one kind of stupid question? When you, you, you link the alpha parameters to, or the, the condition you have to stability, what do you mean by stability in this context? Um, it, um, it, the stability condition, um, I'm not sure where the word stability actually comes from in that, in that context, but um, yeah, I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's to do with the iterative, it, it's, it's this iterative decoding algorithm. Okay. So it passes messages actually, or computations around on the, on the actual graph. So it's, it's essentially to do with the convergence of the algorithm actually. Okay. So it's a kind of stability in that sense. Uh, you know, I'm not sure where the actual word Drives from. Okay, so does it mean it converges if? Uh, yes, it, well, it means that if, if the. Uh, so Q is the probability of erasure on the channel. So if that's. If the, so, so does this Q star telling you where you're going to suddenly start to perform, uh, where it's suddenly you get performance at, uh, converging in the asymptotic case when N goes to infinity? Okay. So um, it's in that sense. I don't think it's, I don't think it's really a controlled theory, theoretic uh, type of stability. Um, okay, so. This is used to plot G of alpha in the, in the general case. And, and one thing I'll note, note as well is that this is the first solution which is exact and, uh, in this form that, that's even for LDPC code. So in LDPC, there was previously a, an approximate way of getting this kind of curve, but now it's exact. Okay, so I'll just move on. So this is really the main analytical uh, result we have. I'll move on to talk about an analysis we've done involving a rate and half, uh, co uh, some rate and half code ensembles. Uh, which are doubly generalized LPC. So, what we. Yeah. Before you go into that, just a quick question. Sure. So, yeah, so, a lot of the analysis is sort of the expectation over all the permutation matrices. Yeah, yeah. Is there a final result that says that pretty much all permutation matrices are good in terms of like the AEP gives you a little bit more refined result of one random codes, right? Like, has an exponential, like a tail, tail behavior in terms of if the code length is large enough. You mean the concentration results? Yeah, the concentration yeah. results. Do you get it? Do you have a concentration um, result? We don't actually, no, no. I mean, we expect they're probably, you can probably attack it with these methods and improve this, but okay. we haven't actually gone this direction. Alright, so, so yeah, yeah. I'm not aware of one that's published actually, so. Mm. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't, you know, hold. But, yeah. um, okay, so uh, what we've looked at is specific code ensembles. We then apply this uh, threshold analysis based on the exit chart and also um, the polynomial solution for G of alpha, so we can plot these things. Uh, another important point is in terms of practical issues. The idea of this parameter tells you whether the, the growth rate is, is positive or negative at the beginning is useful for design because you can put in there as a criteria. You might want to make sure the growth rate is negative or even a certain value so that you can design it and you know it isn't going to be asymptotically bad. But also this guy here, this uh, Called alpha star is very important because this tells us essentially what happens is you're looking at the code, the code words of weight alpha n. And what happens is 
Essentially, you're going to get almost none of them. I mean, you've exponentially small number of these photos. Suddenly, at the start, the start, the photos start to kick in. So it's a little like a minimum distance in the ensemble sense. So it's quite an important parameter. And by plotting, uh, using the polynomial solution we have, we can, we can figure out what these number stars are. Um, so to describe, okay, so we saw that we can pick a lot of different types of check nodes, different types of gradient nodes. So we obviously have a lot of choice, so we, we just uh, limit ourselves to a few ensembles to um, have a crack at them. We consider three ensembles, first of all, um, three strongly regular, as we call them, ensembles. These are all regular ensembles, as in they're graphically regular. Um, every check node is a Hamming code, so we're always going to use Hamming codes for the check nodes. Um, one advantage of this is that we don't have to worry about good versus bad here, because we, because we have a minimum distance three on the check node side. This always gives us our alpha log alpha, pulls us down, and gives us a good, uh, good behavior of the growth rate. So we pick these check Hamming codes for the check nodes. Our variable nodes are going to be single party check, but we're going to consider different representations because it's interesting to see how that representation affects the behavior of the codes. Um, so we have what's called systematic, cyclic, or anti-systematic. So this, this describes essentially the, the, the generating matrix. So systematic generating matrix is a big identity matrix called by a column of ones. Cyclic uh, has, uh, essentially it's a, it's a cyclic generator matrix. And anti-systematic is, is obtained by complementing the identity of the systematic. So there are three different generators you can use to, to have an input-output relationship uh, in the encoding operation for the very remote. But we are, we're not changing the code, and we're not changing the graph, obviously, in any way. So this is what we consider, obviously, the set these single-party checks are going to all be this guy, or else all cyclic, or else all aform. And we consider also what's called weakly regular. So the graph is regular. The, the variables are still all single-party check, but we imagine mixing these S, C, and A. So maybe it would be better if we mix the different representations together. Um, so these are the four ensembles we look at. Um, and for a benchmark, we consider, because we're looking at a regular, graphically regular ensemble, we consider the best rate of half 3-6 regular LDPC code. So the 3-6 regular LDPC has, uh, on the check node side, there are single-party checks, like these ones I've drawn. And on the variable side, you just have repetition. So it's basically code like I have here, except that you've got degree, um, you've got degree three on the checks, and you've got degree six on the variables. So it's a rate half code. Um, and this is this is uh, shown to be optimal by Rajkumar Chakravarty and Tamalam. So some results. So first of all, we got to be, using the exit chart, you can um, obtain some asymptotic thresholds. These are the, the, the thresholds for decoding. Um, and this is all in terms of the, the, it's a binary erasure channel, so we consider the, the uh, erasure probability at which we suddenly um, uh, obtain threshold behavior asymptotically. And we find that, okay, the weekly regular is actually the best in terms of threshold. Now, of course, the way we designed it was actually based on optimizing the threshold, so that's not so surprising. However, it's a very good threshold for, for, um, for a regular code. 0.481. The next best is the cyclic form, 0.45, and then uh, the other guys follow behind. Now, the 3.6 regular LDPC code, which is the best performing regular LDPC, has a threshold of 0.429. So it's, uh, both of these forms are actually better. Um, then we have uh, also looked at the growth rate by the polynomial version uh, of that, so you can see that it goes negative at the start, as we know. And then we have various points at which it crosses. The point where it crosses the axis of zero there is essentially the kind of relative ensemble relative minimum distance. Um, <clears throat> here I mentioned that the Hamming of distance three, so we're okay. And then this alpha star that we're interested in, we see that the best one is actually given by the A form, and the S form is the worst. So we can look at those. Um, now, uh, another question is what about finite length code? So this is all asymptotic stuff, okay? So the uh, the threshold tells you essentially the, uh, the waterfall behavior. So when does at what uh, noise level does the performance start becoming very good? Uh, but of course, it's for asymptotic code, so that you know find that they exactly shape up to that. Then for the growth rate stuff, again, it's asymptotic, so it's considering uh, you know what relative minimum distance do we have, in other words, where are these codes, where do they lie, you know, and when will they start to kick in? So this more uh, affects the error floor of the, of the code. So. In terms of finite length codes, um, we did a, an analysis. So essentially, in, in terms of the um, design, the idea is that uh, we have certain um, uh, certain fractions of uh, nodes or certain types. So we can simulate those. I mean, for example, the weekly regular 
is a mix of types. Uh, I haven't actually mentioned which types uh, are used, but uh, this is a mix of the, S, uh, the cyclic, systematic, and anti-systematic forms. And uh, we can actually, okay, we can figure out the best, the optimized ensemble, which fractions are the best, and then we can target those by taking a length 3,000 uh, code and rate a half. So we can simply just put certain fractions of the code to target those. Uh, uh, certain fractions of nodes can be uh, certain types to target uh, this. So we find that actually the uh, waterfalls here, a weekly regular uh, comes first, uh, is the best. In, in other words, cyclic follows LDPCs uh, shortly behind, and then these guys are not so good. Um, but these actually tally exactly with the, or pretty much with the, the asymptotic thresholds of the drive. So this is controlling the waterfall behavior. The error flows here are estimated based on the search for stopping sets. And um, you can see that actually the weekly regular does well, but it has a reasonably low error flow there. Now, um, one thing that uh, I think is worth, well, it's interesting to mention is that, okay, we have essentially three, if we look at the three strongly regular codes, the anti-systematic is, is not very good, the cyclic is winning. Um, but we've actually, by mixing these three types, we have a weekly regular code which outperforms the others. So what mix is best? Now, it may look like it's probably cyclic codes most of the time, or cyclic form, with a few of the others, maybe a few systematic from it. But actually, what happens is there are no cyclic form nodes in this mix. They're all, they're, well, I mean, they're about 60-40 between anti-systematic and systematic. So this may seem strange. This guy is, is almost there. But, uh, so the reason is actually that uh, in terms of the, the exit chart design is based on this kind of a curve matching uh, idea. So you have essentially a, you got a curve and then you want to match another one closely to it. And what happens is for the, uh, for, I can't remember which, which behaves which way, but essentially with the anti-systematic and systematic, one of them matches the curve very well at the, at the lower part and, and deviates completely at the upper part. And the systematic guy, uh, or well, the other one, um, matches well in the upper and deviates in the lower. So by mixing them together, you can actually fit the curve in a way that's better than the way the cyclic. The cyclic beats obviously these two alone, but by mixing correctly, you can actually beat, beat that. It's very interesting. Um, okay, so. Uh, so just a few comments uh, on the, the performance. All of these are graphically regular. There are 500 variable nodes and 500 check nodes, and they're all connected together in a regular way, uh, which again can be uh, advantageous for uh, implementation point of view. Um, we assume map decoding at the variable nodes and check nodes. Uh, we have the same counter graph for all of these codes. So we have the same graph uh, in terms of computation in the way they passed. The difference is really in the, uh, the computation elements, these nodes. And as you see, it affects actually the answer very much. And one very important point to notice, um, and really the, the reason we, we stress this because reviewers don't seem to um, expect this, they seem to always be surprised, is that um, changing the representation of variables leads to really very different performance in, in, in the codes you get. And by mixing them, you can actually sometimes leverage the advantages somehow. Uh, you can leverage various advantages some of them have and, and mix them together to do very well. Um, so the weekly regular ensemble is actually, I mean, in terms of threshold performance, actually beating the best regular codes and in fact our cyclic form um, and preserving the graphical uh, regularity. A problem with it though is this high error floor. But the strongly regular cyclic ensemble is actually really, we think, gives a nice compromise between waterfall and error floor. So we have a waterfall which is still being the best regular LDPC, but it's actually got an error floor which is uh, expected around 10 minus 8. Okay, so in conclusion, um, we've developed a complete solution uh, in the sense that we don't think there's a lot more, at least on the lines we've, we've, uh, we've studied, uh, that there's more to be done. And our, our, our solution for G of alpha, the initial behavior is very compact, you can't really improve on that. And in terms of the evaluation results, we don't think that the polynomial solution can be improved upon, you know, so it's not really practical. Um, so this essentially characterizes completely the uh, growth rate of the weight distribution for these ensembles. Um, now, in terms of moving to design, there's obviously a lot of parameters to play with there. So our work, we don't really complain, uh, uh, claim that our work presented here is complete. Uh, we're motivated by the need to improve compromise between water performance, uh, waterfall performance and aerothor, and thus explore this class of graphically regular codes uh, where we have having check nodes and single party check. Um, obviously, it's only one in a large class of codes, but 
we think that we've learned a lot from this, um, from analyzing this class. First of all, we've beaten, in certain senses, the regular LDPC codes. And we've also learned quite a lot in terms of the effect of the representations, the way the X chart matching can be achieved by mixing and so forth. So in conclusion, we've got some encouraging results which uh, motivate us to continue our explorations. Essentially, the, we've completed essentially kind of the analytic part. So the tools are all there, really, to, sim to simulate build and optimize these codes. So the question is now just going in and optimize them. So uh, this completes uh, my talk. So I'll take any questions if there are any. Uh, yeah. Can I ask, and sort of obvious one, all, all your results are for the ensemble behaviour, is that, is that right? The ensemble? Yeah. yeah. Well, the finite length results are for actually built models. Have you got any feel for what the individual, you know, what the spread of behaviour within ensembles, if you pick individuals, is that are there many really bad ones? or? Really uh, well, ones generally, uh, Peter brought the same point. Uh, with the, in the LDPC case, what happens is you, you have a number of concentration results which says that um, it essentially goes back to Shannon's original all, almost all codes are good um, oh. idea. So, I mean, in, in certain respects, like let's say the, the threshold points and so on, you, you, can, you can prove essentially that with high probability a code in the, in the class will behave very similarly to the, the expected. You know, okay. so, so very generally, long, it, it's, the results are favourable. They yeah. they imply a concentration of codes around the, the you know the, the average, which is why actually this this ensemble technique has been so powerful. You know, I mean, generally, if you pick, if you, uh, I mean, for example, what we've done here with the finite length, you know, we have uh, essentially we've optimised using the um, analytical techniques over the all permutations. Then we actually use a, an algorithm to grow randomly an LDPC code, and as you can see, it does actually reflect. Uh, you know what we expect, and I mean, it took me a while to actually be convinced that these family-based techniques will actually be useful in the sense you're describing. But uh, I mean, uh, not just uh, in terms of simulation, but analytically, you can prove that that you know these do hold up. They're, they're like really advanced versions of laughing band. It's the same. It's the same sort of thing. It's just the concentration and the quality. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. so maybe it's not a question, Mike. Um, so are these DGLDPC codes, are they like a PC code, are they expressible as a PC code that's not low density or are they somehow even more general? Um, well, okay, so there's kind of two answers, I guess. Um, first of all, um, in terms of design, sorry, in terms of design, um, you I mean, you could have these as very powerful codes. The check nodes could be generalized, and also the variable nodes could be generalized to be quite very powerful codes. I mean, you could have really only a couple of component codes, and then they'd be connected in a very small graph, and the codes themselves would be very powerful. On the other hand, you could just incrementally increase the power of the individual check nodes. Now, what we'd recommend, or at least our gut feeling is, that you know, generally what happens is random coding works, is, is, is the message. You know, back goes back to the, to the first papers on information theory. So having this random ensemble between the connecting up the graph is good. In terms of implementation and computationally, it's good to have the random graph also. You don't want to have very powerful nodes here. You're going to have to have, to, have, to have a lot of complexity in those. So really, there's two reasons for having the, uh, the disconnectivity between, and, you know, so small processing nodes connected by a sparse, complex graph. That generally works well because, first of all, you c it, it, it harnesses the power of iterative processing. So it means you can, you can attack this thing computationally and get it out on a chip, um, as opposed to having big blocks which take a lot of complexity. Um, so, uh, so that's really what we'd recommend. Um, the other part of the answer, if I can, I'm not sure I can remember, but um, uh, so you're saying that are they, are they LDPC? Well, yes, they are. I mean, you, you could actually take these check nodes apart or you could amalgamate them. I mean, you know, if you think of the actual code. Yeah, so it could, you can collapse it, but then it's not going to be low density. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, really, what it's a question of, you know, how do we attack the problem computationally? But, sorry, there is another point I wanted to talk about. But, um, so, w obviously, in terms of what's the actual code you're looking at here, you can amalgamate these two check nodes and make it a kind of a super check node. It's an actual code which checks twice certain rows, uh, certain, certain connections here. So, that's a kind of, uh, so you can actually exchange uh, DGLDPC codes and start doing uh, amalgamation uh, uh, transformation and also separation transformation. 
and you can you can essentially map DGLGPC codes to each other using this kind of thing. Um, but the interesting thing is um, uh, one one thing that I don't know if people noticed, but I mean, if, if you uh, take an LDPC and then you start uh, sticking things together to make generalized nodes, you're not actually changing the weight distribution. Okay, so this may seem counterintuitive. Why why are we looking at the weight distribution of doubly generalized codes? when these are just LDPC codes which have a known weight distribution. But the, the crucial difference is that the family is different. So what happens is, um, basically, the, the power of DGLDPC, and, and one of the things I like about it, is that there's always a disparity between um, people who like random coding, you know, people who, who do this kind of analysis. And then on the other hand, you've got a lot of mathematicians and just, well, algebraists and people who like to look at structured codes and like to use algebraic techniques and don't like the idea of random. Really, they take totally different techniques Generally, people have one preference or the other. So the nice thing about this is that it's essentially random coding, and at the end of the day, random coding is going to beat algebraic methods. I mean, all, all the best optimized LDPC codes are random, are ensemble-based, uh, use ensemble-based techniques. But the nice thing is you can you can kind of you can sneak in there a bit of a bit of structure. So you can say that I mean, for example, a doubly generalized uh, ensemble such as we have in this. Uh, uh, I've presented here, we have these Hamming code structure along the check nodes. Now, there's no way you can optimize, even if you optimize an LDPC ensemble, you won't be able to get in there, that kind of structure. So you have to actually impose it at the distribution level. And then you can actually work out what's the best distribution with various structures in there. So you're actually leveraging a bit of algebraic structure as well as getting the power of the random uh, coding. So. Perhaps a small, similar question is, yeah, you, you are you're forcing the check nodes and the variable nodes to have a linear structure by... Um, yeah, yeah. And if you change that to non-linear functions, do you get any benefits or... Uh, well, you get, you get, um, you lose the benefit of the mathematical tractability, I think. Um, without that, um, let me see, actually, if we change it to non-linear, does it really change the analysis, actually? Um, I suspect it does. I can't actually figure out where, but I suspect it does. I mean, in terms of weight numerator, we still have weight numerator. Yeah. But um, I think there's somewhere where you, you need the linearity. Um, but in terms of, you know, in terms of just taking an arbitrary weight numerator and, and trying to optimize it, I mean, it's, it's a difficult problem. It's hard to see whether you would get anything out of that. Um, but I think in terms of implementation, encoding, and so on, and do, uh, doing the decoding, I think the linearity will come in. So I think without it, I think what you might gain from using a nonlinear code would probably not be worth the computational effort and the implementation effort. So, um, rather than keep people much longer, Hang Hang, you can ask him immediately after. Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to close the session. Mark is here for the rest of the afternoon. If uh, people would like to talk to him, please uh, feel free to come up and do so. I just don't want to keep everybody after. Thank you again.